One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Falcons at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, December 31st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 38. Game Overview by Pappy. This is an elimination game for the Falcons. They are alive for the NFC South crown or a wildcard spot with a win and likely mathematically eliminated with a loss. The Bears are the only nine-loss team who hasn't been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They need to win out and get a lot of help. Matt Eberflus is coaching for his job, even if the Bears probably can't make the playoffs. This game pairs two teams in the bottom five in pass rate over expectation and top five in run defense DVOA. Arthur Smith continues to feed touches to lesser players rather than relying on his trio of top 10 picks. DJ Moore rolled his ankle last week, but might be the Bears' only regular pass catcher who plays. Cole Komet and Darnell Mooney both look legitimately questionable to start the week. How Atlanta will try to win. The 7-8 Falcons come into Week 17 with a losing record, but are still very much alive in the NFC playoff race. They split their head-to-head matchups with the division-leading Buccaneers and are a half game behind them in division record. The Bucs play two division games to end the year, so any slip-up would allow the Falcons to catch them for first place. The NFC South looked like nine wins could take the division all season, but the NFC wildcard race has also gotten surprisingly tight. One of the Eagles or Cowboys looks locked in to the top wildcard spot, but the numbers six and seven seeds are less clear. There are six teams, the Rams, Seahawks, Vikings, Packers, Falcons, and Saints, within a game of each other for the final two playoff spots. Whichever two teams make the dance probably need to win their final two games, which makes this week an elimination game for the Falcons. OWS readers, along with anyone paying attention to fantasy football, know the deal with Atlanta by now. The Falcons want to ride their strong O-line, fifth ranked per PFF, which benefited from the return of center Drew Dahlman and guard Chris Lindstrom last week. Left tackle Jake Matthews went down in the fourth quarter and is questionable early in the week, but for what it's worth, Arthur Smith said that Matthews was cleared to return. The Falcons are last in the league in PROE by leaps and bounds, but they do play quickly, fourth in overall pace, which isn't usually associated with teams that are extremely run-heavy. The Bears have been stingy against the run, third in DVOA, and easier to throw against, 18th in DVOA, but that difference is unlikely to tilt the Falcons away from their preferred method of attack. Desmond Ritter is out, and Tyler Heineke is back in at QB. Who plays QB for the Falcons matters about as much as Smith's classmate's mom calling the school principal to report him for giving her son a wedgie. Expect the Falcons to come out with their typical run-oriented game plan, even if they're testing the strength of the Bears' defense. How Chicago will try to win. The 6-9 and nine Bears are the only team below 7-8 and eight that hasn't been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They need to win their last two games and get a lot of help, but I'm saying there is a chance. Winning out is important for Matt Eberflush who is on the verge of flushing another season down the drain. Victory matters for Eberflus, because even if going undefeated in the last two games doesn't result in the Bears making the playoffs, ending 8-9 on a three-game winning streak feels a lot better than winding up 6-11 on a two-game skid. The result of either finish is probably missing the playoffs, but the first outcome means Eberflus might keep his job, whereas he likely gets fired in the latter scenario. The situation is even higher leverage than normal for Eberflus because Chicago is loaded with draft capital and might end up with two picks in the top 10. There is a good chance the Bears roster will improve dramatically next season with whoever the coach is in position to benefit from the personnel upgrades. 
It might feel like the Bears are already eliminated to onlookers, but these games matter a lot to the coaching staff, and they should have them ready to play. The Bears have played slow, 25th in pace, and run heavy, 29th in PROE. Their offensive line has been adequate at 16th per PFF, and they've generally been able to find success on the ground, ranked 10th in DVOA, especially when they've had Justin Fields healthy to threaten defenses on the ground. This week, they draw the Falcons, who have been strong against the run, 5th in DVOA, and hammered through the air, 28th in DVOA. Smith built the Falcons in the image of his former team, the Titans, on both sides of the ball. The Falcons are best attacked with a pass-heavy game plan, but the Bears strongly prefer to limit Fields' pass attempts, which sets this game up as a strength-on-strength matchup on the ground. The Bears are likely to start out trying to run, but they've shown some willingness to open their offense in competitive games. Expect Chicago to try things out on the ground, but don't be surprised if they end up leaning pass-heavy in the second half if they are losing or it's close on the scoreboard. Likeliest Game Flow This team has a tiny total at 38 and pairs two teams who are in the bottom five in PROE. It's reasonable to expect this game to become a run-fest. Adding to the likely low number of points scored is that both teams are in the top five in rush defense DVOA. This game sets up as a feats of strength contest between two teams who want to run and are also good at stopping the run. I can only imagine how excited Smith must be for this one, but for the fantasy football community, it sets up as one of the worst game environments on the slate. The most likely game flow has both teams trying to run the ball, with neither finding much success, but with both sides being willing to stick with their inefficient ground attacks because the score is competitive. With neither team likely to push the other, expect a run-fest, with the winner being determined in the fourth quarter on a late-game fumble. The Titans at the Texans. Kick off Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Hilo. The Titans had 16 players on their Wednesday practice report, but all 16 were listed as limited or full participants. The Texans had 14 players on their Wednesday practice report, with eight of those listed as DNP, including three starting members of their defensive line, Malik Collins, Will Anderson, and Jonathan Greenard, and two starting members of their offensive line, Laramie Tunsil and Shaq Manson. Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud returned to a limited session Wednesday, indicating he has finally cleared the first step in the league's concussion protocol, no more headaches. That also places him on track to return from a two-game absence, assuming he does not experience any setbacks. Texans wide receiver Nico Collins, calf, Noah Brown, knee, and Robert Woods, not injury-related, rest, all practiced in a limited fashion Wednesday and appear likely to play on Sunday. The Titans have been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, while the Texans currently sit in the eighth seed in the AFC tied in record with the Colts, Steelers, and Bengals. How Tennessee will try to win Almost nothing has changed regarding how the Titans will try to win games this season, or over the previous three seasons for that matter. They're going to start the game with an extremely run-heavy attack and slow pace, aiming to shorten the game and win dirty late. That has been the modus operandi for this team for quite some time now. That said, the game plan has been more susceptible to matchup than in previous seasons due to a stark decline in talent along their offensive line, which has translated to some pretty insane game logs this season. Yes, we're referring to the 20-touch, 10-yard performance from Derrick Henry the last time these two teams met just two weeks ago. 
That is also reinforced by looking at the recent pass attempt values from rookie quarterback Will Levis, who appears to be on track to return from a one-game absence due to an ankle injury. Levis has attempted 26, 38, 33, 28, and 17 passes in his last five starts, with all but one of those games decided by seven points or less. But that's the thing. This defense continues to play at a level that keeps their team in games this season, taking the bend-but-don't-break Bill Belichickian methods to new heights while allowing a touchdown on just 38.18% of opposing red zone trips, second in the league. As we've talked about for the better part of the previous four seasons, Derrick Henry is going to see touches in close games. That is the driving force behind his volume, not matchup and not game total. If the game is close, the Titans will feed their king. That has not changed in 2023, although the team has experienced massive turnover along their offensive line, and so now they are not capable of dictating game environments through brute force. Look at the last meeting between these two teams. The game was close throughout and ended up going into overtime, where Henry finished with 20 touches, 16 carries and 4 receptions, but managed a historically poor 10 yards gained from scrimmage. But the game was close, so Henry saw his touches. The Titans have played nine games since their Week 7 bye, during which time rookie running back Ty J. Spears has outsnapped Henry in five games while playing no fewer than 40% of the team's offensive snaps. In other words, Spears is going to be involved. Spears has just one game of double-digit carries and has scored just one touchdown but his robust pass game role has led to 15 or more running back opportunities in three of his previous five games played. The pure matchup on the ground is poor against a Texans defense seeding just 3.3 yards per carry, second, behind the fewest yards allowed before contact, 0.95. The Tennessee pass offense has become slightly more concentrated of late, but a lot of that has been out of necessity with Nick Westbrook-Ekine missing Week 16 and subsequently being placed on injured reserve, and tight ends Trevin Wesco and Josh Wiley missing games recently. That said, Wiley returned from injury in Week 16 but didn't see an offensive snap, so this could be a case of intent as well. Expect modest pass volume with DeAndre Hopkins, Chris Moore, Traylon Burks, and tight end Chagosium Unconquo serving as the primary options through the air in sub-elite snap rate roles. True to form with this offense, only Hopkins has sniffed double-digit looks throughout this season, Unconquo has one game over six targets, Burks has one game over just four targets, Moore has not seen more than four targets all year. Doing so on five separate occasions and returning a GPP viable score three times. That makes things rather easy here. Can Hopkins see double-digit looks? And if not, nobody is GPP viable. How Houston will try to win. The Texans have undergone a few different identity shifts this season as they battle through injuries and changes in their offensive play calling. So much of what they want to do of late has revolved around both lines, with their offensive line charged with orchestrating a dynamic zone-gap running block scheme and their defensive line providing additional help in front of quarters, cover two and cover three alignment. The latter of which makes sense considering their head coach, D'Amico Ryans, had his upbringing in San Francisco. They also clearly had to adapt to changes at signal caller with quarterback C.J. Stroud missing the previous two games with a concussion. 
It currently appears as if he is on track to return after getting in his first limited session since the injury on Wednesday. As we've talked about in the past, a player can't return to practice until they are absent of headaches, which is likely the cause of Stroud's inability to practice until this point. The Texans are primarily a run-balanced offense with only four games all season with a positive pass rate over expectation, which should continue forward into Week 16 considering they held a minus 5% PROE the last time these two teams played. Former lead back Damian Pierce has played 11 offensive snaps or fewer in four of five games played since returning from injury in Week 12, leaving Devin Singletary as the primary back with Dere Ogumbawale as the preferred passing down specialist. The Texans have been blown out twice in that five-game span, which were games where Ogumbawale had 29 and 41 percent of the offensive snaps, while Singletary saw just 57 and 44 percent snap rates. In the two games that were played two tightly contested matches in which Pierce saw only a handful of offensive snaps in that span, Singletary commanded snap rates of 82 and 75 percent both games of which were decided by less than a touchdown, including the last time these two teams played. We certainly seem to have a trend in this backfield's current state, with Singletary capable of seeing 25-plus running back opportunities in close games, but subject to ceding additional work to Ogumbawale in negative game environments. Pierce is unlikely to reclaim his early season role as the lead back due to continued struggles in picking up the team's zone gap concepts, something we've covered in multiple places this season. The matchup on the ground is not ideal against a Tennessee defense holding opponents to 3.8 yards per carry and just 19.7 DK points per game, allowing just 10 total touchdowns to the position behind the league's second best red zone touchdown rate allowed this year. The pass game appears to be approaching a state of health after it experienced the loss of electric rookie wide receiver Tank Dell, done for the season, quarterback C.J. Stroud, concussion likely to return in Week 17, and wide receiver Nico Collins, calf strain likely to play in Week 17, within the span of two weeks. This offense is similar to that of the 49ers in the sense that so much of what they do through the air is built around what they do on the ground, which opens up the lanes behind the linebackers and in front of the safeties. Bobby Slowick's intricate offensive design aims to get his playmakers in space with the ball in their hands, which has led to some of the top yards after the catch in the league. The Titans have been near-league average in man-zone splits, while Collins and Noah Brown both rank in the top 20 in fantasy points per route run against zone this year. Collins has excelled against man as well, commanding more than 25% of the team's targets against that primary coverage, but his low 15% targets per route run rate against man falls well short of being classified as elite. Even so, he should operate as the true alpha in this pass offense with Dell done for the season. Beyond that, and considering this team's offensive tendencies, all pass catchers should be considered reliant on efficiency with Collins the likeliest to approach or surpass double-digit looks in this spot. Likeliest Game Flow We know the Titans are not going to push game environments, and the Texans have been largely content to grind out victories themselves, ranking 17th in first-half scoring, 10.2 points per first half, leaving this game environment as likeliest to be won in the fourth quarter. That matches what we saw from these two teams in their first meeting, although that did come with Case Keenum under center. 
That said, the Texans have the pieces to generate explosive plays, which would be the primary path to this game developing into something beyond a muted environment likely to be won late. It's just less likely than in other spots on this slate. The Raiders at the Colts kick off Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson If the Colts lose this game, they will need to win in Week 18 and get a lot of help to get in the AFC playoffs. The Raiders have clawed their way back into the playoff hunt, but need to win both remaining games to have a chance. Indianapolis should have their offense back close to full strength as they expect to get Zach Moss and Michael Pittman back in uniform this week. Las Vegas should enter this game with a ton of energy and momentum after a 42-point win over the Chargers and a shocking Christmas Day upset of the Chiefs. The Colts have a worse home record, 3-4, than they do on the road, 5-3, while last week's win over the Chiefs was the first time all year the Raiders beat a team that currently has a winning record. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders' approach to winning games is no secret at this point. They have taken on the personality of their head coach and are playing a physical brand of football with their running game and defense leading the charge. Last week, they created two defensive touchdowns in the first half against the Chiefs and did not complete a pass for the last three quarters of the game. Yes, you heard that correctly. Rookie quarterback Aiden O'Connell completed nine passes on the Raiders' opening drive and then did not complete another pass the rest of the game. The Raiders were playing without running back Josh Jacobs, but just ran the ball and let the clock run while trusting their defense to contain the Chiefs, and they were able to hold on for the 20-14 victory. What we saw in Week 16 was basically a perfect script for how the Raiders want to play. Obviously, they would have preferred that a few of their passes be completed, but they are a team that has a clear vision of how they want to play, and they are going to enter each week looking to establish the run and let their defense set the tone. Las Vegas ranks in the bottom half of the league in pass rate over expectation, and has become even more run-heavy since their mid-season coaching change. They also rank in the bottom 10 in the NFL in seconds per snap, as they take their time and milk the play clock. Make no mistake, this is an old-school smash-mouth football team that is going to try to impose their will on their opponents. The Colts rank 24th in the NFL in run-defense DVOA, while ranking 25th in PFF run-defense grade, suggesting that the film matches the statistics. Indianapolis faces the fifth-lowest opponent pass rate on the season, which should continue this week. The Colts were gashed on the ground by the Falcons in Week 16, a similarly run-based offense, and there is nothing about this matchup that should alter the Las Vegas approach as they enter this must-win game. When they do take to the air, they should have more success and find easier completions than they did last week against Kansas City. The Chiefs play man coverage at the fifth highest rate in the league and rank second in QB pressure rate, while the Colts rank 19th in QB pressure rate and lead the league in zone coverage rate. 
This is a far different matchup for the passing game, and Las Vegas should be able to create some easy passing opportunities for O'Connell on hitches, slants, and other in-breaking routes that take advantage of the holes in the Indianapolis zones. How Indianapolis will try to win The Colts are one of the more surprising teams in the NFL this season, and enter Week 17 with a great chance to win the AFC South. They are currently in a three-way tie for the division lead, and should make the playoffs if they can win their last two games. They would get a home game from winning the division if they can do that and have the Jaguars lose at least one of their last two. Considering Jacksonville may be playing without their starting quarterback, the Colts have a golden opportunity to shock the AFC by winning the division while playing most of the year without their highly touted first-round pick, quarterback Anthony Richardson. This season's performance has been a testament to first-year head coach Shane Stitchen, and the Colts have adapted well all year. The Colts will likely rely on their all-pro running back, Jonathan Taylor, and their very good offensive line in this game. The Raiders' pass defense has been very good this season, especially in recent weeks, and generates a lot of pressure that can lead to turnovers. Quarterback Gardner Minshew has outplayed expectations for most of this season, but his biggest flaw is almost certainly his propensity for negative plays at untimely moments. The Colts will likely realize this and take purposeful steps to keep those things from happening early in this game after seeing how the Raiders played against the Chiefs. We should expect a ground-focused game plan from Indianapolis, with ball control and field position being made a priority. They are likely to focus on their running game on early downs and try to set up short and manageable throws for Minshew that let him find his receivers and tight ends on shorter routes and check down to his backs if nothing is there. The Raiders blitz at the fourth lowest rate in the NFL, and the Colts' line should give Minshew enough time to at least not force a bad decision, even if he does feel a bit of heat from Max Crosby and company. Likeliest Game Flow This is an interesting game from a play volume standpoint, as the Raiders tend to operate as a downward force upon their own play volume and that of their games, while the Colts have created a lot of high volume spots this year. The Raiders are steadfast in their approach, while the Colts tend to alter their game plans more specifically to their opponents. Both teams have offenses whose primary identity is built around their running game, so we should expect things to start off somewhat slow. The Raiders are going to be excessively conservative as they have a defense they trust and a running game they are steadfastly committed to. If this game is going to take off, it will need big plays from the Colts' offense, likely through Jonathan Taylor in the running game, or turnovers forced by the Raiders' defense. In either regard, the Raiders are the constant in this game's likeliest game flow, while the Colts will be the highly volatile variable that will determine how things play out as they have been all season long. The Panthers at the Jaguars kick off Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 38. Game Overview by Hilo The lone DNP for the Jaguars to start the practice week was quarterback Trevor Lawrence, shoulder, who had been battling some sort of shoulder injury on his throwing arm over the previous three weeks and was then forced from the team's Week 16 loss without being hit, favoring said shoulder. 
The Panthers had a laundry list of players on the first injury report of the week, most notably five defensive starters, including two members of the secondary, cornerback Troy Hill and cornerback J.C. Horn, and two linebackers, Marquise Haynes and Frankie Louvu. Jaguars wide receiver Zay Jones, hamstring, knee, returned to a limited session Wednesday, and head coach Doug Peterson expressed optimism that the veteran wide receiver would be able to return in Week 17. How Carolina will try to win There is an inherent edge in DFS by staying ahead of the field through changing dynamics. There is no better example, I mean, maybe the Bills, than this Carolina team a team that started the season with a run-balanced approach but has been the most run-heavy team in the league since Frank Reich was fired by PROE. Offensive coordinator Thomas Brown has said since day one that the team needs to hashtag establish it, and they've attempted to do just that. Beyond that, Chuba Hubbard has emerged as the true workhorse back in this offense with Brown at the helm. More on this in a moment. As I just mentioned, Chuba Hubbard has operated as a true workhorse back since Thomas Brown took over play calling, playing 64% or more of the team's offensive snaps in five consecutive weeks while seeing opportunity counts of 19, 25, 25, 24, and 17 during that time. He has hit double-digit DK points in each of those games, but has gone for 20 or more just twice while averaging just two targets per game. Miles Sanders has been relegated to true change-of-pace status, seeing 10 or fewer opportunities in each of the previous four games. The matchup on the ground is far from ideal against a Jaguars team seeding 4.0 yards per carry while holding opponents to a 53.06% red zone touchdown rate, 13th. That said, the Jaguars have allowed a robust 1.45 yards before contact, while the strength of their defense rests with their speed. Rookie quarterback Bryce Young threw for multiple touchdowns for just the second time this season in Week 16 against the ultra-prevent Packers. His 36 pass attempts in that game tied the high mark since Brown took over the offense, and it was the first game all season where Young passed for more than 300 yards. In other words, this pass offense is not a well-oiled machine. That said, it does present the path of least resistance against the Jaguars but that path of least resistance is primarily on the perimeter. Bryce Young has struggled to throw to the perimeter all season. One of the most interesting aspects of Brown taking over the offense is how he kept the offense heavily rooted in 11 personnel, even with the inflated rush rate over expectation numbers. Adam Thielen, Jonathan Mingo, DJ Shark, and Tommy Tremble all operate as near-every-down pass catchers in this offense, while Thielen and Shark have combined to catch 9 of the 11 touchdown passes thrown from Young this season. If Young is tossing a touchdown, chances are good it's going to be one of Thielen or Shark. The biggest problem is that aerial touchdowns have been extremely hard to come by for this team this year. How Jacksonville Will Try to Win The big news to follow out of Jacksonville this week is the status of franchise quarterback Trevor Lawrence, who missed practice Wednesday with a shoulder injury that he appeared to aggravate at some point in the team's Week 16 loss. He was removed from the game in the fourth quarter after favoring the throwing shoulder while not being touched, which isn't exactly an ideal setup for a quarterback. Lawrence has yet to miss a game in his second season and has gutted out an ankle injury and concussion. Can one gut out a concussion? already this year. 
So chances are he plays this weekend in what amounts to a must-win game as the Jaguars fight to hold off the Texans and Colts in the AFC South. All three are tied at 8-7. and seven. Head coach Doug Peterson said that he expects Lawrence to practice in some capacity on Thursday. I'm writing this Thursday morning. But that the team also intended to limit his throwing ahead of Sunday. Either way, the Jaguars have dropped four straight games after holding a commanding lead in the division entering Week 13 and have subsequently held the league's highest PROE during that time. Under the assumption that the team will either be captained by a quarterback with a bum shoulder, AC joint sprain, or a backup in CJ Beathard, it stands to reason that this team should try and get the ground game going in this spot. Whether or not that ultimately comes to a fruition is likely left up to their defense's ability to slow down an anemic Carolina offense. We've talked about Doug Peterson's relative inability to be fluid in-game this season in multiple spots throughout the year, making the recent spurt of pass-heavy tendencies stick out like a sore thumb. That also means that this team is likely to require a game plan of a ground-heavy approach as opposed to something happening during the contest to vault running back Travis Etienne into an elite workload. But that is not outside the realm of possibility here. The amount of guesswork and conjecture needed to roster a running back priced at 7200 on a team that has the highest pass rate and highest PROE over the previous four games takes a bit of faith. But all signs point to a game plan that attempts to re-emphasize the run game here. The matchup is a good one against a Panthers defense allowing 4.1 yards per carry, but 26.5 DK points per game to opposing backfields while allowing 23 total touchdowns to the position this year. With Zay Jones appearing likely to return from a one-game absence, expect the team to get back to three primary wide receivers in Calvin Ridley, Zay Jones, and Parker Washington. The team has moved away from the elevated 12 personnel rates they started the season with of late, which could simply be a function of the increased pass rates over the previous month of play. Luke Farrell and Brenton Strange are both healthy again, keeping the door open for a potential return to increase 12 personnel rates. The Panthers' normally tough pass defense is dealing with numerous injuries in the linebacking core and secondary, making this a better matchup than what it is presented as on paper. Both Evan Ingram and Calvin Ridley have two games of 12 or more targets in the team's last four games, a function of the shift to an extremely pass-heavy attack during that time. Whether or not those tendencies continue moving forward remains to be seen, but both players have a clear path to double-digit looks in the current form of this offense. The extreme zone rates of the Panthers bias emphasis towards Ingram slightly, with no healthy wide receiver seeing more than 18.6% of the targets against zone this season, Ridley. Likeliest Game Flow This matchup is an interesting one between the past-heaviest team over the previous month of play, Jaguars, and the run-heaviest team over the previous month, Panthers, by PROE. And yet, the clearest path of least resistance for each team is the exact opposite of how they have operated of late, with the Panthers best attacked on the ground and the Jaguars best attacked through the air. That introduces a wide range of outcomes for this game environment, albeit with a greater distended portion of the range of outcomes to the downside. In other words, this game is likeliest to play to a gross slugfest a notion that Vegas largely agrees with as it is tied for the second lowest game total of the week at 38. Somewhat interestingly, this game's total has been bet up by 0.5 points since its opening, 
which I vehemently disagree with. There is further downside for the fact that Jacksonville quarterback Trevor Lawrence's throwing shoulder is clearly not right after he was forced from the team's Week 16 game without being hit. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Rams at the Giants. Kickoff Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Rams are healthy at the right time as they push closer and closer to securing a playoff spot out of the NFC. Only defensive back Trey Tomlinson and offensive lineman Joe Noteboom missed practice Thursday. The Giants also appear relatively healthy, with no player sitting out of practice Thursday. The Tommy-Danny-DeVito experience appears to have, sadly, come to an end, with the team announcing that veteran quarterback Tyrod Taylor will start for the remainder of the season. In case you haven't noticed, Kyron Williams has the league's second most valuable workload and role when healthy. Either Koopa Cup or Puka Nakua has gone for 101 or more in each of the previous four games for the Rams, each doing so twice. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Rams have had the third lowest expected pass rate over the previous month of play, which speaks volumes to the recent torrid stretch this team has been on of late. The Rams have rattled off five wins in their last six contests, with the one loss in that span being an overtime defeat at the hands of the AFC-leading Ravens. That has led to a modest 56% pass rate over the previous month of play, which is actually right in line with their season-long pass play rate. In other words, this is a run-balanced team that also has one of the highest rush rates in the league when playing with a lead. The Rams rank near the middle of the league in points allowed per game and red zone scoring rate allowed, which might be more impressive than their offensive exploits when considering the state of their defensive roster entering the season. Either way, the Rams have scored 32.4 points per game over their previous five contests, all of which coincide with Kyron Williams, Cooper Cup, and Puka Nakua being fully healthy. In fact, the Rams have averaged the same yards per play value as the 49ers when all three of their primary offensive playmakers have been healthy this year. The 49ers lead the league in that category this season. As alluded to above, the Rams prefer to attack with their ground game when playing with a lead. Since returning from injury in Week 12, Kyron Williams has played 77% or more of the offensive snaps four times and has seen opportunity counts of 22 first game back from injury on a 61% snap rate, 26, 29, 34, and 22 in that span, going over 100 yards on the ground in four of those five games, scoring a touchdown in four of those five games, and seeing four or more targets in four of those five games. That, my friends, is elite. Kyron has a few things going for him in this spot. First off, the Rams are 5.5-point favorites on the road, And as we said previously, the Rams love to run the football when playing with a lead. Secondly, the Giants have allowed a robust 4.7 yards per carry this season, third worst in the league. And finally, the Giants have allowed 14 total touchdowns to the position this season, tied for the seventh most in the league. No doubt about it, this is a solid on-paper spot for Kyron Williams this week. 
Rookie running back Ronnie Rivers rejoined the active roster in Week 16 and immediately reclaimed the change-of-pace role behind Williams, seeing six carries on 15 offensive snaps in the process. Arguably more impressive than the concentration of volume on the ground is the concentration of volume through the air. Over their last three games played, Rams tight ends have combined to see 13 total targets, or 4.33 per game. Pukanukua, Cooper Cup, and Demarcus Robinson have all worked their way into every down pass-catching roles, each playing 86% or more of the offensive snaps during the most recent three-game stretch. Those three wide receivers have combined for 29 targets, 19 targets, and 29 targets in that span, with at least one of them going over 100 yards through the air with a touchdown in each of those games, Cup twice and Nakua once. Cooper Cup also finally appears to be fully healthy. If you've watched their games over the previous four weeks, Cup is back to being the motion man of this offense on every offensive snap running more yards prior to the snap of the football than any other wide receiver in the league. That should do wonders to get Cup in the matchup, most beneficial to production against the elevated blitz rates of Wink Martindale, increased by the fact that Cup owns a ridiculous 32% target rate against man coverage this season. Both Cup and Nakua are in a solid spot this week, while Robinson has now scored in four consecutive games for the Rams. How New York will try to win. The Giants have been forced to overcome numerous changes this season through injuries and ineffective play at the quarterback position. It's difficult to develop any sort of rhythm or consistency with four different eras of the season helmed by different signal callers. Daniel Jones started the first five games before suffering an injury that cost him the next two contests. Tyrod Taylor started the next two before suffering an injury himself. Jones returned to start in Week 9 before his season-ending injury. Tommy DeVito started the next six games before being benched for ineffective play heading into Week 17. It has been a veritable disaster, and we didn't even mention the injuries to Saquon Barkley and Darren Waller this season, both of whom missed significant time after coming into the season as the top two options on the offense. Furthermore, the normally stiff red zone defense under Wink Martindale has taken quite a hit this season, slipping from a 52.78 red zone touchdown rate allowed last season to 59.26 this season. Overall, the Giants rank 7th in rush rate over expectation while having a positive PROE in just 3 of 15 games played. Saquon Barkley has played below 75% of the team's offensive snaps just three times all season as one of the true workhorse backs remaining in the league. Unfortunately, that hasn't always translated to consistent volume or offensive production while playing for a team averaging just 14.3 points per game, the second fewest in the league. Barkley's pass game role does enough to offset the need for multiple scores, as opposed to providing legitimate pass game upside, in the current state of this offense. The pure rushing matchup is middling, at best, against a Rams defense holding opponents to 4.1 yards per carry, behind 1.29 yards allowed before contact. Finally, the Rams have allowed the second-fewest DK points per game to opposing backfields this season, at 17.4. Wide receiver Darius Slayton is now the only near-every-down pass catcher in this offense, playing 93% or more of the team's offensive snaps in the three games since the Giants' Week 13 bye. 
Wandale Robinson, Jalen Hyatt, Isaiah Hodgins, Daniel Bellinger, and Darren Waller have all mixed in for tick-above-situational roles, but tick-below-featured roles. That doesn't leave a ton of upside for any of these pass catchers, particularly against a Rams defense playing elevated rates of zone coverage, against which no Giants pass catcher has seen more than an 18% target rate this season. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely we see the Rams control this game from the jump. It is also highly likely that the Rams score 30-plus points in this spot, considering they have done so in four of the last five games played, while averaging 32.4 points per game in that span. That makes it highly likely that Kyron Williams will end the week with one of the most robust workloads on the slate. It is also worth noting that Cooper Cup or Puka Nakua has gone for 101 or more in each of the previous four games, with each accomplishing that feat twice. In other words, we expect this team to score points, and we expect them to be rather concentrated, which means we should expect some GPP-relevant scoring to emerge from the Rams' side of this one. The Cardinals at the Eagles. Kickoff Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Eagles' offense finally woke up in their 33-25 Week 16 victory over the Giants, which was the first time in four weeks that they had scored 20 or more points. Kyler Murray has not passed for more than 256 yards in any of his six games since returning from injury this year. Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon was previously the defensive coordinator for the Eagles, which should help them be prepared for Philadelphia's offensive attack. The Eagles' defense has struggled with mobile quarterbacks this year, giving up big games to Josh Allen, Dak Prescott, times two, and Sam Howell, times two. The Eagles' offense has been dominant against bad defenses this season, and the Cardinals rank dead last in the NFL in defensive DVOA. How Arizona will try to win. Arizona lost convincingly to the Bears last week, which marked the third time in the last four games the Cardinals lost by double digits. The lone exception to that game was their win in Pittsburgh against the Kenny Pickett and Mitch Trubisky-led Steelers in a game played with poor weather and field conditions. The Cardinals have found ways to be competitive at times this season, but they've recently been abused and the season is taking its toll as the injury count mounts and the team's conservative and talent-ridden defensive scheme gets beat up on by opponents. This week, they travel to Philadelphia, where they will face a familiar foe in Gannon's former employer. Murray missed practice on Wednesday and Thursday with a holiday bug, as he is reportedly dealing with an illness. Obviously, his presence or absence would make a huge impact on the projections for this game. We saw one game with Clayton Toon under center against the Browns, and the Cardinals' offense was anemic in that spot and barely able to move the ball. I would expect something similar from Arizona's offense this week if Murray were forced to miss, but I would expect him to be available. Assuming they have Murray, the Cardinals' offense will be in a tough spot facing a solid Eagles defensive front that has been worse against the run lately than they were early in the season. Arizona will likely focus on running the ball with James Conner and targeting Trey McBride in the passing game. The unfortunate thing for Arizona is that Philadelphia is most susceptible on the perimeter to wide receivers, 
the spot where the Cardinals are the least threatening, especially with Marquise Brown expected to miss another game this week. The Cardinals will look to control the ball early in the game and likely will take a couple of downfield shots off play action as well. Assuming Murray is healthy, we should expect Arizona to use his mobility to create problems for the Eagles and try to extend plays and break them down in that way to create bigger running lanes. The Cardinals know that Philadelphia is built for playing with a lead, so while their overall tendencies will likely focus on ball control, they should also realize their best chance against the Eagles will be simultaneously shortening the game and forcing Philadelphia to play from behind. Long drives that end in touchdowns. Sounds easy, right? How Philadelphia will try to win. The Eagles got back in the win column by surviving a late comeback attempt from the Giants on Christmas Day. Philadelphia is now tied with the 49ers and Lions for the lead in the NFC, although they lose the tiebreaker to San Francisco thanks to their head-to-head -head loss and worse conference record. If the playoffs started today, they would be the number two seed. The Eagles now have a one-game lead in the NFC East on the Cowboys, however, and two very winnable games against the Cardinals and Giants left on their schedule. The Eagles have it fully in their control to be no worse than the number two seed with an outside shot at a first-round bye if the 49ers were to slip up. This week, Philadelphia draws a familiar foe in former defensive coordinator Gannon. The Cardinals employ Gannon's zone-heavy coverage scheme that blitzes at the sixth lowest rate in the league. From a philosophical perspective, they are extremely conservative and are built to keep things in front of them and try to mitigate big plays. Their defense has given a few teams some fits this year, but still ranks 31st in the league in DVOA against both the run and the pass. The way this matchup sets up is for the Eagles to gash them on the ground and then take the underneath passes that Arizona's defense gives them due to its conservative nature. The Cardinals had some massive communication breakdowns two weeks ago against the 49ers that left players wide open down the field for easy touchdowns. The San Francisco offense is much more complex, and their motions and route concepts are far more difficult on a defense than what Philadelphia does, so we shouldn't expect the easy bunnies like that to happen this week. Rather, the Eagles' offense is more dependent on just matching up helmet on helmet and trusting their guys to be better than their opponents. This week, that should be the case. Khalil Herbert had a big game on the ground last week for the Bears against the Cardinals after being quiet for most of 2023. The Eagles have an elite offensive line and should be able to dominate on the ground in this matchup with DeAndre Swift, Jalen Hurts, and potentially the Eagles' backup running backs operating as the engines of this offense. While Arizona's coaching staff's familiarity with the Eagles' scheme may help them in some ways, their inferior personnel and the nature of Philadelphia's offensive approach aren't really the type that you are going to scheme away. The only way Arizona could do that would be through selling out to stop the run and leaving their overmatched secondary one-on-one -on -one against A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith. I find it highly unlikely that they will abandon ship on how they have played all year just to watch Brown moonwalk into the end zone. Rather, they will likely play their usual style of defense and accept the slow death of the Eagles' running game, pounding them into oblivion. Likeliest Game Flow This is a game that had a lot of excitement attached to it a few months ago with the Eagles being viewed as a high-scoring, explosive offense and the hope that the Cardinals' offense would be explosive with Murray under center. 
Unfortunately, this profiles as a quick-moving game with a relatively low number of possessions. The Cardinals have to know that slowing the game down and shortening it by ball control and long possessions is their best chance. Likewise, the Eagles have made a habit out of very long, clock-killing drives this season. While those drives often end in points, all it takes is two drives in the first half of six to nine minutes to make it so you blink and the half is almost over. Philadelphia's lack of pre-snap motion and creative offensive concepts, along with their trust in the tush-push to get them short-yardage conversions, has created a situation where they are making fewer explosive chunk plays and are taking huge chunks of time off the clock. The Eagles are relatively conservative on offense and run the ball while completing a high percentage of their passes. This results in the clock continuously running on drives that often last 10 to 15 plays. Arizona's lack of offensive explosion and wide receiver talent should keep them from busting out for any quick scores, so Philadelphia is likely to take early control of this one. We should expect a comfortable Eagles win, although they've been making things harder on themselves than it needs to be in recent weeks. The Saints at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Hilo Saints running back Kendra Miller, ankle, got in two limited sessions to start the week following six straight missed contests. Saints wide receiver Chris Olave, ankle, also got in two limited sessions to begin the practice week. Buccaneers cornerback Carlton Davis, concussion, is still not practicing following his concussion. The Saints have had the sixth largest drop-off in rush defense EPA over the last four games when compared to the first 11 weeks of the season, ranking 30th in rush defense EPA over the previous four weeks. The Buccaneers currently hold a game in hand over the Saints for the NFC South title. A win by the Saints in Week 17 would still require a win in Week 18 with a loss by the Buccaneers to head to the playoffs. How New Orleans will try to win the Saints have largely hovered right around league average in PROE all season, with their two outlier games this season falling well below league average PROE values. Furthermore, their 22.1 points per game, 13th, 19.8 points allowed per game, 9th, 36.3 pass attempts per game, 9th, and 27.3 rush attempts per game, 13th, all rank around league average this season. In other words, this Saints team is around league average in most statistical categories this season, entirely unremarkable, which makes a lot of sense when taken under the umbrella of a 7-8 and eight record this season. That said, this game is the Saints' season. They must win out and still get some help to make the postseason. That adds a level of desperation to this team in this spot, something that ideally could force them into increased pass rates earlier rather than later in the right environment. The New Orleans backfield is relatively face-up at this point in the season. Expect a near-even split in snap rate between Alvin Kamara and Jamal Williams in tightly contested game environments to positive game environments, while it's Kamara that sees an increase in snap rate in negative game environments. Even so, Williams has seen double-digit running back opportunities in just one game where both backs were healthy this season, and now must contend with the likely return of rookie running back Kendra Miller after his extended absence. 
The Buccaneers have slipped slightly in rush defense EPA of late, but still remain a difficult matchup on the ground, dropping from second in that metric over the first 11 weeks of the season to 11th over the previous four weeks. On the season, the Buccaneers have seeded just 3.9 yards per carry and 18.1 draft king points per game to opposing backfields. Finally, the Bucs have allowed just seven total touchdowns to opposing backfields in 2023. In other words, this is not an ideal spot for Saints running backs. Not much has changed regarding how the Buccaneers have played defense from earlier in the season, blitzing at the league's third highest rate while playing almost exclusively cover one and cover three behind it. As we've talked about in the past, those two coverage shells typically allow an increased rate of first read targets, and a solid chunk of those first read targets this season have gone to Chris Olave. Olave has seen eight or more targets in all but three games this year, piercing double digits six times. He is still playing sub-elite snap rates, but has been in a route at a non-terrible 94.6% clip on dropbacks this season. He has also been absolutely elite against man coverage, seeing a 31% target rate against that primary coverage shell in 2023. He should be joined by Rashid Shahid, A.T. Perry, and tight end Juwan Johnson as the primary pass catchers, none of whom are overly likely to command targets the way Olave can and should. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Buccaneers started the season slinging it around the yard, but have held a below-average PROE in each of the previous four games played. That period has coincided with one of their easiest stretches of scheduling this season, but the point remains that they have attempted to be more run-balanced over the last four games. They still, however, bleed production through the air, allowing five of their last six opponents to pass for more yards than their season-long averages, and the team that failed to do so was the Panthers. From an offensive perspective, this team is extremely valuable to us as the vast majority of their production flows through just three players, Mike Evans, Rashad White, and Chris Godwin. This newfound emphasis on the run game from the Buccaneers has afforded Rashad White with an absolutely elite workload over the previous four games, seeing opportunity totals of 25, 27, 23, and 27 during that time. For comparison, White saw 20 or more running back opportunities just three times in the team's first 11 games played. Furthermore, White ranks in the top seven in just about every statistical measure of running back production this season including opportunity share, snap rate, red zone touches, carries, receptions, route participation, expected fantasy points per game, the list goes on. Now, this is not going to be a perceived good-on-paper matchup from the field, I can all but guarantee that, but the Saints have slipped hard in their run defense of late, falling all the way to 30th in run defense EPA over the previous four weeks. There just might be something here. As I mentioned previously, what makes this team so fun to target in DFS is their elite concentration. Chris Godwin has seen double-digit looks in each of the previous three games after being vocal about his relative lack of involvement in the offense while Mike Evans is having one of the best statistical seasons of his storied career. Tight end Kate Otten is a legitimate every-down tight end, but has not seen the targets to match the snap rate this year, seeing more than a modest six targets just once all year. The Saints have run the second-highest rate of man coverage this season, against which Mike Evans has seen a ridiculous 40% target rate, 
and Evans no longer has that pesky Marshawn Lattimore to contend with. Any way you slice it, Evans finds himself in another solid on-paper spot this week. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a fairly wide range of outcomes, with a likeliest scenario that lends to a more muted game environment, primarily due to New Orleans' team tendencies. That said, there are some interesting angles at play in this spot due to some changing dynamics of each of these teams and via the desperation factor from both sides needing a win for the postseason. In other words, we know the Buccaneers have largely changed their primary point of emphasis towards a run-balanced approach on offense, while the Saints have ranked third to last in rush defense EPA over the previous four weeks. We also know the Saints are a run-balanced team themselves, but their clearest path of least resistance is through the air, primarily to Chris Olave. Due to where both Olave and Rashad White are priced, I can't see them garnering much ownership on this slate, and they make for an interesting pairing with a nod to this game environment being controlled by the Buccaneers, with the Saints going into desperation mode in the second half. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Commanders. Kick off Sunday, December 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 50. Game Overview by Mike Johnson San Francisco looks to bounce back after an embarrassing loss to the Ravens in prime time on Monday night. The 49ers will be traveling across the country to play a game in the early window on a short week, one less day of rest. Washington has made the change from Sam Howell to Jacoby Brissett at quarterback after Howell imploded the last couple of weeks. Washington's defense ranks last in the NFL against the pass for the season, while also giving up more points per game to running backs than any other team since Week 9. The 49ers' offense scoring 30-plus points in this matchup is one of the highest confidence situations you will ever find. How San Francisco will try to win The 49ers have been on a tear for most of this season, especially when healthy. Their tour de force was temporarily knocked off track last week against the Ravens as Baltimore dominated on both sides of the ball and derailed the Brock Purdy for MVP hype train. After throwing only seven interceptions through the first 14 games, Purdy threw four against the Ravens and was disrupted by their pressure and coverages all night. The 49ers are a high-octane offense, but are also built to play in close games or with a lead. Once they fell behind and Purdy had been made uncomfortable by the Ravens' defense, it was more or less a lost cause. Purdy left the game for the second time in as many weeks due to a shoulder stinger and was replaced by Sam Darnold. He did return to a full practice on Wednesday and should be fully expected to play this week in a mouth-watering matchup. Perhaps the bigger concern for the 49ers offense is the status of all-pro tackle Trent Williams, who left Monday's game with a groin injury. His absence leaves them much more vulnerable to pressure up front, although this week that should be less of an issue than it was against the Ravens. The 49ers did lose two other offensive linemen to injuries on Monday, however, so their statuses should all be tracked heading into this week's game. The commander's defense is about as soft as you will find in the NFL at this point. 
They have given up 28 or more points in seven of their last eight games, including each of their last six, during which they have surrendered an average of 34.7 points per game. The 49ers offense, on the other hand, has been dynamite when healthy. Last week against the Ravens was the first time that a fully healthy 49ers skill core failed to score 27 points in a game this season. Of course, the Ravens boasted the NFL's number two ranked DVOA defense, while Washington enters week 17 ranked 31st in the same category. This is also a defense that gave up just 30 points to the Jets. Not an easy feat. Said another way, this is about as pristine of a bounce-back spot as you could draw up for Brock Purdy and the 49ers. Washington ranks 32nd in pass defense DVOA and has been torched repeatedly through the air this season. They also rank dead last in the NFL in fantasy points per game allowed to running backs since week 9. Basically, the 49ers should be able to move the ball however they want this week. San Francisco's offense operates with Christian McCaffrey as the centerpiece and utilizes Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle extensively to complement him in the passing game. Those four will account for approximately 80-90% to 90% of the team's offensive usage for at least the first three quarters of any game that isn't completely out of hand. CMC should have plenty of room to operate against a Washington defense that gave up a monster game to Brees Hall last week. Washington plays a high percentage of zone coverage, with two high safeties being their predominant look. That type of coverage is best suited to be attacked by Debo Samuel and George Kittle due to the types of routes they run and their run-after-catch ability. Not that Brandon Ayuk is in a bad spot this week, but the tendencies would tend to point toward Debo and Kittle for the big game in this spot. All that being said, there should be plenty to go around for a team looking to get right after their setback in Week 16. I would be more surprised if the 49ers scored under 30 points in this matchup than I would be if they scored over 45. How Washington will try to win. The Commanders have had enough of the Sam Howell experience and decided to move on to veteran journeyman Jacoby Brissett for the remainder of the 2024 season. Brissett has come on in relief of Howell each of the last two weeks and actually looked solid in both appearances bringing Washington back from big deficits to make games very competitive. While many are questioning bringing Brissett in to start at this point due to his age and the fact that winning games would actually hurt the commander's draft position, it is almost certainly the right move to make. Washington plays the 49ers this week and the Cowboys next week. Starting Howell at this point would be a lost cause and guarantee massive blowouts. Moving to Brissett probably doesn't result in Washington actually winning either game, but should make them more competitive and give them a better sample to evaluate the other positions on their team. It is hard to adequately evaluate your line, receivers, and defensive players when the quarterback is putting them in such disadvantageous positions so early in the game. This, at least, gives them a fighting chance. The Commanders rank near the top of the NFL in pass rate over expectation. Each of the last two weeks when Brissett entered the game, Washington was already facing massive deficits, so it is hard to take too much from their approach with him under center in a predictive mindset. That being said, Washington has been so pass-heavy with Howell this season despite how many sacks he took and how many turnovers he committed, so it is hard to imagine they pumped the brakes now that they have a more stable quarterback under center. 
Offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy was previously with the Chiefs, and their PROE was very similar there to what Washington has done this year. So it seems like a safe bet that what we've seen is just the system and will continue this week. The 49ers' pass defense ranks top five in most categories and third in PFF pass rush grade despite blitzing at the third lowest rate in the league. Said another way, they get a ton of pressure on the quarterback without bringing extra bodies. We should expect the commanders to continue throwing at a high rate this week, but the focus will likely be on getting the ball out quickly and safely, at least early in the game. This is especially true with their two best runners, Brian Robinson and Chris Rodriguez, battling injuries. Early in the game, Washington will be trying to balance aggressively chasing points to keep up with the 49ers while trying to shorten the game a bit through ball control. Likeliest Game Flow First of all, while the 49ers offense has great on-paper matchups across the board, they are still an offense that can sometimes be a bit of a slow burn, where they have modest first-half production before the avalanche comes down in the second half. Their play-calling and game scripts early in games will test defenses and see how they play them, while often setting up big plays they will go to later in the game. Kyle Shanahan is elite at making adjustments to how teams are playing them and has the weapons to make them pay. From that perspective, if Washington is able to sustain some drives and burn some clock in the first half, it increases the likelihood that this game stays within shouting distance at least through halftime. Second, the 49ers' offensive line issues could also slow down their explosive attack. Brock Purdy has left two consecutive games with a shoulder stinger, and while he seems to be fine and the commander's pass rush is almost non-existent at this point, you would think the 49ers will make it a priority to give him extra protection this week. San Francisco has to feel confident about their ability to score on Washington this week, and if a bit more run-heavy game plan and or quicker, more conservative passing concepts keep Purdy upright, they will probably accept a slightly lower rate of explosive plays. If this game had Howell starting for Washington and a fully healthy 49ers offensive line, something like a 42-14 type of game would have felt imminent. The insertion of Brissett for the Commanders opens up the range of outcomes for this game. Now that Washington will have a somewhat stable QB who may be able to sustain drives and should be able to limit sacks and turnovers, things may change quite a bit. Washington's improved offensive outlook should balance the scales a bit in terms of first half time of possession and field position, while the 49ers' potential blocking issues may lead them to taking a bit longer to fully step on this downtrodden defense. All things considered, we should expect a pretty convincing 49ers victory here, but there are paths to Washington keeping things at least somewhat interesting. The Steelers at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, December 31st at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Mason Rudolph came out of nowhere to spark the Steelers' offense in last week's dominant win over the Bengals. Pittsburgh will need to win on the road against two very good teams, Seattle and Baltimore, if they are going to have a shot at making the playoffs. A win for Seattle would put them in an extremely strong position to make the playoffs. Seattle has lost at home only twice this season, both times to current playoff teams and division rivals, the 49ers and the Rams. 
George Pickens erupted last week against the Bengals' man-heavy coverage scheme, but this week faces a Seahawks secondary that plays primarily zone. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Steelers kept head coach Mike Tomlin's quest to never have a losing season alive with a resounding victory over the Bengals in Week 16. The Steelers still have to win both of their remaining games against two current playoff teams, Seattle and Baltimore, if they are going to have a chance to sneak into the AFC playoffs. The Steelers saw enough of Mitchell Trubisky and decided to hand the reins to Mason Rudolph as their starting quarterback. The result was a game where they finally utilized George Pickens downfield and they scored 30 points in a game for the first time all season. Pittsburgh plays at a methodical pace, and only five teams in the NFL pass the ball at a lower rate relative to expected than the Steelers. This week, they face a Seattle defense that plays zone coverage at a very high rate, rarely blitzes, and is built upon the idea that they will keep their opponents from making big plays and will swarm to the ball. Seattle's run defense started the season very strongly, but has been much more beatable lately. Despite the big plays from Pickens last week, we should expect the Steelers to be forced to the short and intermediate areas of the field in the passing game this week. This is a team that tries to win by out-executing their opponents and winning the turnover battle. Seattle's defense is especially tough at home and should force the Steelers to march the field rather than giving up chunk plays. Pittsburgh will likely have a strong emphasis on their running game and heavily involve both Najee Harris and Jalen Warren. Pittsburgh will play methodically and have extended drives. They should be well-equipped to move the ball against Seattle, but with their big plays likely limited, they will be forced to show some ability to convert red zone opportunities into touchdowns, something that they rank 27th in the NFL at this season. How Seattle Will Try to Win The Seahawks have been and continue to be a team that focuses on winning games in the fourth quarter. While their overall pass rate has risen in the last two seasons, and they will certainly take some shots, they are still a team that is generally conservative and their goal is not to lose the game in the first three quarters, and then they hope to out-execute their opponents in the final period. This approach got them to the playoffs last year, and has them in position to do so once again this season. The scripts played out perfectly for Seattle in their last two games against the Eagles and Titans, both of which were 20-17 Seahawks victories during which the Seahawks outscored their opponent 10-0 and 14-7 in the fourth quarter of each respective game. This week, the Seahawks will likely employ their usual approach against the Steelers' 7th-rated DVOA defense. Seattle ranks in the top 10 in pass rate over expectation for the second consecutive season. However, Geno Smith ranks 25th out of 30 qualifying quarterbacks in average intended air yards as the team has taken fewer deep shots and operated more in the short to intermediate areas of the field this season. Smith ranked 19 out of 33 quarterbacks in the same category last season. And with the addition of Jackson Smith and Jigba in the first round of this year's draft, it was expected that Seattle may become more aggressive, rather than pulling things back close to the vest again. The Steelers' defense has the number 5 graded pass rush by PFF and blitzes at the fourth highest rate in the NFL. As discussed, Seattle wants to keep these games close until the fourth quarter, which requires that they avoid negative plays. Considering their conservative passing tendencies and the imposing defense they are facing with T.J. Watt and company ready to wreak havoc, 
We should expect Seattle to be especially close to the vest early in this game. The Seahawks also added star-wide receiver DK Metcalf to the injury report on Thursday, and his availability and effectiveness will be critical to the Seattle offensive approach as they will likely be even more conservative if they are without Metcalf or he is limited. Likeliest Game Flow Expanding upon the approach and tendencies of the Seahawks to play in close games and try to win the fourth quarter, there have been only five Seahawks games all season where the game was not within one score heading to the fourth quarter. A week one loss to the Rams when the Seahawks looked out of sync and were caught off guard by a better-than-expected Rams team. Week three at home against the league-worst Panthers, Seattle led by nine through three quarters. Week 4 against the Giants, when they were completely out of sorts and Daniel Jones was playing awful, they led 17-3 through three quarters. Week 9, when they were trounced by the league-leading Ravens and trailed 30-3 through three quarters. Week 12 on Thanksgiving, when Geno Smith was playing on a short week with an elbow injury, they were down 24-3 at halftime. Going through that list, you can see that Seattle games generally play out exactly how they want them to, except in outlier scenarios in either direction. Either a truly elite opponent, or a team playing at a very low level that is unable to execute much of anything on one or both sides of the ball. If we dig into the 10 games that have been within one score going into the fourth quarter, we can see that there have only been three instances of games scoring more than 44 points. Those games were against the Cowboys and Lions, two of the league's top offenses, as well as the Commanders, who are arguably the league's worst defense. The Steelers are a competitive and well-coached team that generally executes at a high level and is coming off a great performance against the Bengals. They are not a bottom-feeding team, but are also clearly not in elite power. Therefore, the most likely outcome here is a game that is played somewhat conservatively by both teams and enters the fourth quarter within one score in either direction. Due to the aforementioned tendencies and playing styles, it is also unlikely that this is an especially high-scoring game. The result is what should be a competitive and entertaining game, but one that has a relatively tight range of outcomes around its implied point total of Seahawks 22, Steelers 19. Both teams have struggled in the red zone offensively, and that, along with the expected lack of explosive plays from both teams, is likely to leave this game as a slugfest rather than a shootout. The Chargers at the Broncos kick off Sunday, December 31st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 36.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the Broncos benched quarterback Russell Wilson this week, despite still having an outside chance to make the playoffs. Los Angeles bounced back from its embarrassing 63-21 loss to the Raiders by nearly upsetting the Bills last Saturday. The Chargers' pass-catching core continues to deal with a ton of injury issues, as Keenan Allen and Joshua Palmer may miss this game. The Broncos may be without their top wide receiver, Cortland Sutton, as well in this game. Sutton is dealing with a concussion and has yet to practice this week. These teams met two weeks ago when the Broncos won 24-7 and their defense absolutely dominated. How Los Angeles will try to win. 
The Chargers bounced back in a big way after their embarrassing primetime loss to the Raiders that got Brandon Staley fired. Playing in primetime again last Saturday night against the Bills, the Chargers controlled the game and kept things close for all four quarters while playing terrific complimentary football in a close loss. The big key for the Chargers in that game was that they forced three turnovers from the Bills while committing none of their own. That was in stark contrast to the Raiders game, where the Chargers committed five turnovers while creating none. That swing from a negative five turnover differential to a plus three was everything for Los Angeles and showed that it definitely needs to be on the plus side to have a chance to win. This week, the Chargers face a Broncos team that has been terrific at creating turnovers in their victories over the second half of the season. While Denver lost an ugly game to the Patriots on Sunday night in Week 16, this has been a team whose defense has improved over the course of the season and has given some weaker teams fits this season, including the Chargers just three weeks ago in the game where Justin Herbert and Allen were injured. Herbert is done for the season, and Allen seems unlikely to return this week, while Palmer is also likely to miss this game due to a concussion. That leaves quarterback Easton Stick in a tough spot as the Chargers continue to lose playmakers and will be facing an opportunistic defense. The strength of the Broncos' defense is their ability to create takeaways and their perimeter defense against the pass. Where they are most vulnerable is against running backs and the short middle areas of the field in the passing game. Austin Eckler should be extremely busy in this game and operate as the focal point of the Los Angeles offense. Tight end Gerald Everett should also be heavily involved, as tight ends have given Denver fits at times this season. The Chargers may also look to get Stick out of the pocket to use his legs to create easier passing angles and let him run the ball when the defense allows. Mobile quarterbacks creating yards with their legs can be a bit of a cheat code for teams like this who are running out of able bodies, and Stick isn't their long-term quarterback, so they should have no issues letting him run the ball 8-12 to 12 times this week. All things considered, the Chargers are likely to keep things simple and play close to the vest early as they hope to play another low-scoring game and win the turnover battle. How Denver Will Try to Win the Broncos made a big decision for the future of their franchise when they benched Wilson for the remainder of the season. We don't need to go into the semantics of whether it was the right decision or not here. All that matters is what it means for this week. The reality is that while Wilson's counting stats look good for 2023, there is a lot of fluff in them, and he routinely was making things more difficult than they needed to be last year and this year. From an offensive standpoint, there is a very real possibility that Jarrett Stidham is able to come in and execute an offense and play within a system at a higher level than what we have seen from Wilson recently, most notably in a tough performance last week against the Patriots that more or less ended the Broncos' chances at the postseason. The Broncos are likely to be without some of their top weapons this week as well, with Sutton likely to miss due to a concussion and Marvin Mims also missing practice with a hamstring injury. There was hope that tight end Greg Dulcich would return at some point this season, but that seems to be out the window at this point as well. What we can expect is this Broncos offense to look a little more organized and timed out with Stidham under center than it has for most of the season. 
Stidham is more of a traditional pocket passer and should be able to complete more traditional passing concepts that Wilson was struggling with pulling the trigger on to execute, which often led to him running around hoping to make something happen off script or just checking down to a running back. The Chargers' secondary has been very beatable this season, so Stidham could potentially exploit them in Sean Payton's scheme, and Jerry Judy is quietly in a very good spot this week for elevated targets that he can actually work with. Sean Payton's offense has always heavily featured the running backs, and that won't change this week. Even if there are less of the checkdowns available for no other reason than the fact that they are running out of bodies at the other positions. The Broncos have the 8th lowest pass rate over expectation in the league this season, but I would expect Peyton to open things up a bit now that he has a quarterback under center that will let him execute the offense he wants to run rather than trying to work around his quarterback's personality and limitations. Not that Stidham is a world beater, but he is most likely a better fit for how Peyton wants to run the offense. And Peyton will assuredly want to prove that this week after all the heat he is taking for the decision to bench Wilson. This is a terrific matchup, and the Broncos' offense has more potential for a strong showing than most people will realize. Likeliest Game Flow The Broncos are likely to control this game, as they should be able to move the ball effectively on the ground and have a bit of an element of surprise on their side in the passing game. While Wilson's numbers this year look strong, his style had become somewhat easy to prepare for and predictable for opponents. Stidham should be more willing and able to attack various parts of the field, and should also get the ball out with better timing that can pick apart a sometimes out-of-sorts defense like the Chargers. Likewise, the opportunistic Broncos defense is likely to create some havoc for the undermanned Chargers offense through sacks and potentially turnovers. This will likely stay a somewhat competitive game, but the first matchup between these teams is eerily similar to what seems to be the most likely game flow here. Both teams are dealing with a lot of offensive issues, but the Broncos are playing at home and have the stronger defense in terms of creating pressure and causing mistakes. This results in a scenario where they should be able to take control early and impose their will. Both teams will likely play at a methodical pace and feature their running backs and short area passing, which will likely result in a game with relatively low play volume, at least in the first half and for as long as the game is relatively close. The Bengals at the Chiefs kick off Sunday, December 31st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Bengals must win out to have a chance at making the playoffs in the AFC. If the Chiefs win this week, they will clinch the AFC West and lock themselves into the number three seed at worst with an outside chance at the number two seed. Kansas City has scored more than 21 points only twice in their last eight games. The Chiefs are likely to be without starting running back Isaiah Pacheco due to a concussion. Cincinnati will once again be without the services of all-pro wide receiver Jamar Chase due to his shoulder injury. Cincinnati's defense ranks 32nd in the NFL in yards per play allowed. How Cincinnati will try to win the Bengals were on quite an inspiring run with Jake Browning under center before last week's debacle with the Steelers. Browning has been very good in his three games against middling to lower pass defenses, while he struggled mightily in both games against the Steelers. 
This week, he draws a Chiefs defense that has been the constant for Kansas City this year, and which should give them all they can handle once again. The Chiefs rank second in the NFL in QB pressure rate and blitz at the fifth highest rate in the league. They will be bringing the heat on Browning, who is likely to once again be without the services of Jamar Chase. The absence of Chase and the strength of the Chiefs' pass defense will tighten things up considerably for the Bengals. If they want to win this game, they want it to be a 20-16 type of game, not a game where they need to score 30-plus points. While the Bengals' defense hasn't been great this year, they have had their solid moments, and the Chiefs' offensive struggles should let them approach this game in a more conservative mindset than they would have in past years. Defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo has done very well against Kansas City in past years, and the Bengals are likely to trust his ability to keep this lower-octane version of the Chiefs in check. Playing without Chase, the Bengals' top wide receiver option, T. Higgins, will face a very tough matchup against Legereus Sneed and the Chiefs' secondary, which notoriously slows down opposing wide receivers. The result of all of this should be a more run-leaning game plan for the Bengals and their passing game to focus on their running backs, tight ends, and slot receiver, Tyler Boyd. They will try to keep Browning from making early mistakes that let the Chiefs' offense off the hook and will keep their passing game concepts to the short and intermediate areas with easy first and second reads. How Kansas City Will Try to Win The Chiefs have backed themselves into a bit of a corner, but are still very much in control of their season at this point. A win this week would more or less lock in their playoff positioning and give them the opportunity to rest some veterans and take a breath to reassess things heading into postseason. The Chiefs have placed Jarek McKinnon on injured reserve and expect to be without starting running back Isaiah Pacheco due to a concussion he suffered in last week's loss to the Raiders. Those absences in the backfield will likely leave the Chiefs leaning heavily on Patrick Mahomes and the passing game once again. I suppose there are worse corners to be backed into. The Bengals are the only team in the NFL giving up more than six yards per play this season. They were also just torched by Mason Rudolph and the previously inept Steelers offense last week. That is the perfect opponent to help the Chiefs get back on track and maybe look like the team we have seen in past years. Their passing game flows primarily through rookie wide receiver Rashid Rice and superstar tight end Travis Kelsey. Although Kelsey has not had many big games recently and was visibly extremely frustrated in last week's loss. The Chiefs struggled all game to protect Mahomes as Max Crosby and the Raiders' pass rush applied pressure on virtually every drop back. Priority number one for the Chiefs' offense this week will be to give Mahomes more time and not have him running for his life every snap. The Chiefs are not likely to throw the ball on nearly every play like they may have in past seasons under these circumstances, but nonetheless, we should expect a pass-heavy approach, and they should have more success than they did last week and other recent weeks where they struggled. With their season on the brink, we should also expect Kelsey to be at the forefront of their offensive game plan and heavily involved early in the game. Likeliest Game Flow Three months ago, the expected game flow from this matchup would have been markedly different than what we are expecting here. The Chiefs are likely to control this game, although it is hard to expect them to jump all over their opponent given their struggles in 2023. Kansas City should have a more pass-heavy approach and may even play with a bit more tempo as they look to jumpstart their offense and get out to a lead while playing with a shorthanded backfield. 
the likeliest game script seems to be that of the Chiefs' 27-17 Week 15 win over the Patriots when they threw the ball at an extremely high rate in the first half and built a lead, then coasted to a victory even as New England brought things closer on the scoreboard in the second half. The Chiefs' offense is not producing explosive plays anymore, and the Bengals' offense is unlikely to find many of them in this matchup. Kansas City is much more likely to be able to sustain drives against the Bengals' offense, however, and should be able to gradually take control and ice away another ugly victory.